Luke chapter 22, verse 24. It says, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And just context, those who are disputing and arguing about who's the greatest is the disciples, the 12 disciples. So Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles ex- exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so for many of us, it's been, it's been a while since we've been in Luke for many of us, we're, we're unaware of the, the context of this and what's surrounding this and what has happened and led up to this. Um, but basically, this is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. Okay, so like f- there's, there's a heaviness that's here. There's a lot that's going to transpire in the next 24 hours. What has already transpired is the beginning of the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we saw in verse 1 of chapter 22. We see that Satan enters Judas. Judas is about to... Um, you know, betray Jesus. Um, and this has all been happening already. Like, the, it's, it's been building. There's been momentum to this. There's been uh, meetings behind closed doors. There's been conspiracies. There's been plans um, set in place. And this, obviously, even though it was in clo- behind closed doors, Jesus knew this was all happening. This was all part of his plan, right? We talked about it one week, how, you know, many times throughout the Gospels, it said that Jesus' hour had not yet come, but as we've read in this chapter, that his hour is now here, meaning it's the time for him to do what he came to do, which was to lay down his life, to be the Passover lamb for his people, which is us, all of us. So Judas enter, or Satan enters Judas. Um, he goes away. Um, he, remember, he's one of the 12 disciples that was chosen by uh, Jesus. Uh, Jesus then prepares the Passover meal. They have the Passover meal. And as they have the Passover meal, this was our last study, we see that the Old Covenant, which was um, a part of the Passover meal with the Egyptians and the Israelites, he has now established a new covenant, right? That is now with not just the, it's not about the Passover, but it's about communion, about the Lord's Supper. It's now integrated into just bread and wine, or for us, you know, we we do juice. Um, So we've got a bread and juice, and we do that in remembrance now, not of the freeing of the the slaves of the Israelites from the Egyptians, but a freeing of us as slaves to sin, right? So we do it in remembrance of him, of what he did on the cross, because when he was on the cross and he was crucified and he was resurrected, it has now given us the opportunity to be free from the power and the condemnation that sin brings. And so when we partake in communion, we do it in remembrance. So all this is transpiring, right? Jesus is, is teaching them. He's leading them. He's being gentle with them. He's guiding them into a, a new covenant. And obviously to this point, if you remember, how long, how many years have the disciples been with Jesus to this point? Three. Three years. That's a long time, guys. Three years they have been with Jesus. So they've seen Jesus do everything. They, the only thing they have not seen Jesus do is what? Anyone want to guess? Sin. They haven't seen him sin. 
He's done everything perfectly. Everything with love and gentleness, kindness, patience. I mean, they've seen the true character of God personified in Jesus Christ. That's amazing. But then we get into this section, and then it seems like as if those three years were for nothing. Right? Everything that Jesus personified of God, everything that Jesus taught, everything that Jesus did by example, um, it seems as if, sometimes from our point of view, especially as, as leaders or teachers or pastors, that, man, everything Jesus did for the disciples meant absolutely nothing. Because here, in the midst of this, okay, in the midst of this, after establishing the new covenant, right, explaining that this new covenant is now in his blood that he's going to shed on behalf of their, their sin, he says in verse 22, or verse 21, he says, But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. So one of the twelve is going to betray Jesus. No one knows who it is except for Jesus and Judas. And he says, And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It says in verse 23 that they begin to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. It started off, I would guess, somewhat in humility. Might have been a little bit of confusion. And they just thought, is it me? Is it, is it I? Am I the one that's going to betray Jesus? I think, you know, if, if one to were exalt themselves and think of themselves too highly and too good, you would say, I would never betray you, Jesus, if Jesus had proclaimed that one of you is going to be- betray me. But rather, there was a humility that started off here, and they all questioned amongst themselves and said, man, is it, is it going to be me? Am I going to betray Jesus? And I, th- I, I believe that's a healthy balance of how we should perceive ourselves knowing that like, we are only one step away from any type of sin that anyone else commits. Right? That we are not, no greater than anyone else. And so in humility, they question, is it me? Am I going to be the one that does it? You know, Paul had that mentality too. Like he saw himself, even though he, he had this fine balance of he knew he was chosen by God, that he was redeemed by God, that he was an apostle, that he was a disciple, right, that, that, that God had put him in that position, but at the same time, he had that balance of, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the least of the least, right? So it wasn't, he wasn't so hard on himself that, like, he just saw him of himself as, as rubbish, right? And he wasn't so high of himself that it ex, he exalted himself, but no, he had this fine balance of, this is how Jesus sees me, Right? This is where he's called me to. I'm, I'm a saint now. I'm considered a saint, not a sinner. That's not my identity. That's not my definition. But I also know that I, I still sin, and I had the capability of, of, of doing horrendous things because of the, the, the sin nature in me. Right? He says, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. Or maybe he's even just remembering of what he once was. We talked about that last time, I think, too, how, you know, sometimes God doesn't wipe our memory and our brains from past sins that we've committed. And it, because once we remember it, it's a humbling thing, but also it's an exciting thing and it's an encouraging thing because we see where God has taken us from, where we were to where we are now. So they start in this humility of, okay, is it me? But then in the very next verse, something transpired within a matter of, I don't know, probably five, ten minutes, okay? It says, they were also 
Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Could you imagine? This would drive me absolutely nuts if I were Jesus. Again, he spent three years with them. He's trained them. He's taught them. The Holy Spirit has been evident. Like the character and the fruit of Jesus, I mean, it it just, it, it protrudes from him. It's very, very evident. And then within a matter of minutes, and I'm just reading between the lines here, within a matter of minutes, they go from, am I the one that's going to betray Jesus? To, no, I'm actually the greatest in here. <laughs> I'm the greatest, I'm the, I'm the best disciple there is. And, and Jesus probably sitting there just like, are you kidding me right now? Like, guys, probably slamming his head against the wall, or at least, I mean, obviously he wasn't, but I would be. And I get it because I'm, I, I get it from his perspective and I am nowhere near Jesus. That, that is not what I'm trying to, to get at. But as a leader, you know, sometimes I, we, we pour our hearts into you guys and then you just don't get it. And then you go off and do something completely contrary to what the Bible just told you that morning that we, we studied in, right? And it makes you want to like bash your head against the wall as, as a leader or even as, you know, for your parents. They, they, they train you one way, they teach you one way, they even set the example one way, and then you go off and do the completely opposite. And I think what we get from that, and what I want to encourage maybe even our leaders, is that we can't always put these great expectations on us, on, on unmet expectations. That truly, listen, and it's not that we go to the expectation of, oh, well, they're just kids, or they're just sinners, they're just going to do what they want to do, they're going to follow after the flesh, you know, let them do that. That's, that's not what we, what we strive for, okay? We, we strive to be holy as he is holy, but we got to understand that we will never meet that holiness. We're never going to meet that perfection on this side of, of, of heaven. So what that does is, is it allows room for growth when we don't put this unmet expectation on each other, right? Because what? Sanctification is a process. It takes a while. Maturity it's a process. It does not happen overnight. It does not happen when you are 17 years old and 364 four days old. And then the next day you turn 18. It doesn't mean you're automatically mature now. Same thing when you turn 21 or 30 or 40. Maturity doesn't just come with age. Okay? But it does come through time and it comes through experience And as we're going to see this morning, it ultimately comes through us serving. It comes through humility. And so this sanctification that we we have in our lives, listen, I know you guys mess up. I know some of you don't even want to be here. I know some of you strive to do well, but you you fall. And I want you to know that that's okay. It's going to happen. But but what, what what does the saint do? What does God do for the righteous? What does he do? He picks them back up. Right? We fall seven times but he picks us back up. The foolish are the ones who don't get picked back up. They're the ones that don't get back up. And so you will fail. You will fall. You will be like the disciples. We're in the midst of the greatest night in history when Jesus is trying to teach them what it means to be a servant is that they start to argue about who's the greatest. And what we see is through the sanctification process of the disciples that it took time. It took experience. It, it took falling down to learn. And so that's going to happen in our lives as well. And so again, 
says there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Humility and maturity, again, does not come overnight. And I really believe that you have to work for it. You have to work for it. And I think once you think you're there, once you think you have the humility or the maturity, you still have to keep working for it. You still have to keep fighting for it. You still have to keep abiding in Christ. And so the word here for greatest, as they're arguing about who is the greatest, it's a comparative form of the Greek word megas. It means pertaining to being relatively superior in importance. And oftentimes it didn't really have to do with actual superiority, right? Whether that's a title or a job or whatever it is, but a perceived superiority, which was, again, who was considered the greatest. Like, who was considered by the crowds or the people to be the greatest? Who had the the highest social media following, right? Who brought in the most revenue? That is who they were arguing about, who is the greatest. Now, I think it is also twofold. It's that, and it's also who you think you, you are as being the greatest or superior than others. And as we're going to see this morning, oftentimes this has to do with positions, titles, things that we've, we've worked for, whether it's, you know, a PhD, a doctorate, something in our career, some type of authority in some type of career, or sometimes it has to do, as Jesus is going to say, with age. That because I'm 16, I'm superior over the 12-year-old. Or because I'm 60, I'm superior over the 50-year-old. And Jesus says, that's not so. Age doesn't matter, and title doesn't matter. But in the world, he says, those things matter. But what does he say about us when it comes to the world? We're contrary to the world. We're the opposite of the world. We don't do things the way the world does things, because that's not the way that Christ does things. And if we follow along with the way that the world does things, it only leads to hurt, it only leads to pain, it only leads to destruction. Because why? Because it's all self-centered. Guys, if, if we were all self-centered, we would have so much pain and hurt. Like, it, it, we would have no relationship, we would have no friendship, we would have no growth, there would be no experience of love. But when we are selfless, as we're going to see, by serving, then really there's a growth that comes from that. There's friendship, there's love, there's peace, there's all these things that God designed for us and wants for us comes from that. So they go from, Lord, is it I? To, well, you know, Peter, you, you, you kind of you suck, man. Like, you know, you denied Jesus a couple times or you're going to deny Jesus a couple times. You know, you did this. Remember the other day when you like accidentally said the, a bad word when you stubbed your toe? He's like, I, you start thinking, I didn't do that. At least I'm not Peter right? At least I'm not, not Andrew. I'm not James. I'm not this disciple. And you start thinking of all the, the, the wrongs that the other disciples have done. You're like, I haven't done that, right? And we, we start to build ourselves up by looking at how bad others are. Have you guys ever done that? I know you don't have to admit it, but I, I know we have, right? Like, oh, like, really? He watches radar movies? Like, I didn't know I was better than him. <laughs> but what that does is it starts to, you start to exalt yourself. And we are not called to exalt ourselves. You know, we start to think, well, at least, at least I'm not like him. At least I, I'm not as bad as you are. And again, what we realize is that we're all the same. 
We're all sinners. We're all just as bad. Jesus doesn't look at me and says, wow, Jeffrey, I'm, you know, you're so much better than everyone else. <laughs> That's not the case at all. He had to die for my sins as well. And we're all on the equal playing field. And so often throughout the Gospels, Jesus encourages them, don't exalt yourself, right? Humble yourself and you will be exalted. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. If you truly want to be exalted, humble yourself. Realize who you are. Look at Jesus. Listen, when you look at Jesus, don't look at anyone else. Because comparison, it's not good. It, it, it destroys so much. It's, it's a warped view of everything. Don't ever compare yourself to someone else. Don't ever compare your future marriage to someone else's marriage. Don't ever compare this or that. Don't compare your gifts that God has given you to other people's gifts. Don't ever compare in that sense. Only compare yourself to Christ. Look at him. Because I think once we look at him, it's, it's, it's pretty revealing then who we are. I see his beauty and his majesty and his glory and his holiness and then I, I realize that I am, I am far from that. But I want to be near that. I want to be close to that. And so it, it humbles me. It brings you upon your knees as you look at Jesus. And I think that's what he wants. That's what he desires. And if we exalt ourselves, then we're not capable of doing what Jesus instructs his disciples to do in this section. He says in verse 25, he says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. So Jesus is patient. He's teaching them, right? He doesn't just, you know, throw them in timeout. He doesn't just walk out. He doesn't just start over with 12 new disciples. But he says something here, and he teaches them. And we're going to see that not only is he teaching them in word, which is very important, but he also teaches them in what he does, which is just as important. The two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And so Jesus speaks the truth, and then he lives the truth. Right? He says the kings of the, the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. Now, obviously, in this room, who's the greatest of them all? Who's, who's as we define it in 2023, who's the goat? Who is it in that room? It's Jesus, obviously, right? Does Jesus, like, raise his hand and stand up and be like, guys, I'm the greatest? Like, are you that dumb? Do you not realize that, hey, I'm, I'm the son of God over here. I can do anything I want besides lie and sin. I can do anything I want. But no, he stops and he teaches. He's patient. But not only, again, not only does he speak the truth and teach them, but he lives it. How does he live it? Well, John 13, which Luke doesn't really record here. In John 13, do you remember what he does this night at this moment? What he puts into practice? Remember what he does? He gets on his hands and knees and he starts to wash their feet. Now, contextually, because John doesn't really record what's happening here at this moment of them arguing about who's the greatest, but man, how hard would that be? It's hard enough to get on your hands and knees and wash people's feet. It's even harder, I would think, in the midst of them arguing about who's the greatest. So they're arguing about who's the greatest. In John chapter 13, this is what happens, starting in verse 2. It says, And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Remember, we're in this section right here in Luke 22. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. 
This is the Son of God. This is deity. This is God himself who gets on his hands and knees on the, the very men that he created who aren't listening to anything he's saying at this point and are arguing about who's the greatest in the room and we know their feet are dirty. He gets on his hands and knees and it says in verse 12, when he had washed their feet, he had taken his garments and he sat down and he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, he said, you're right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, then you know these things. Blessed are you if you do them. Blessed is the one who gets on his hands and knees and washes the other's feet. But the world says, blessed is the one who's sitting at the chair who's getting his feet washed. And Jesus says, no, it's the opposite. If you want to be blessed, if you want to be exalted, if you, if you want the things that God has, the joy, the peace, well, man, start with serving others. He says, blessed is the one who does them, not just knows it, but does it. And so Jesus sets the example as being the greatest. Right? Who's the greatest of all time? It's Jesus. And he sets the example. And what I love about Jesus is he doesn't even have to say it. You know when guys run around and they just claim that they're the greatest? I'm like, if you have to claim that you're the greatest, you're probably not the greatest. Let others speak for you. And Jesus says that. He goes on to say that here with the idea of the benefactors. Right? You've got the Gentiles who exercise lordship over them. Right? And, and, and this is like a, a, a dictator. This is someone who's like leading by a whip, right? telling you what to do, exercising lordship and authority. Then you also have those who exercise authority over them. And he says that they're called benefactors. This is the idea of, of wanting to get credit. Right? That, that I will only do this and, and be this if I get the credit. That people only serve if they can be assured of getting the proper credit. Like only if somebody's going to notice. Only if that's going to you know, lead to my promotion and my exaltation and getting credit and, and, and getting a name for myself and getting a title for myself. And Jesus even speaks of this, and I think he uses benefactor as irony because he makes similar comments to those who coveted titles, and many people covet titles. In Matthew chapter 23, I read this really quick. Verses 7 through 12, it says, He says, they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. He says, but you, do not, but you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. He says, look, there's only one that's the greatest. There's only one that's a rabbi. There's only one that's the teacher. There's only one true shepherd. There's only one true pastor, and that's found in Jesus Christ. Everyone else is just brothers. You're all the same. We're humans, we're sinners, we're created beings. He says, For one is your teacher, the Christ, you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, for he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I mean, Jesus says this over and over and over again, because this was the struggle in the time for them, and it's a struggle in the time for us now. 
And it happens a lot. We try to exalt ourselves. We try to make a name for ourselves. We, we want to be praised by men. And Jesus says, no, you cannot be my disciple if, if that's your goal, if you want to be praised and exalted by men. In 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 1, I'll read this to you. It says, the elders who are among you I exhort. This is Peter writing. He says, I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Peter is notches above the people he's writing to in the sense of the world would, would see. Okay, he's established himself. He's a disciple. God has chosen him. He's writing these things to other elders, but he says, me, as a fellow elder, I'm just like you guys. And he's going to go on, he's going to exhort them in this, in this letter. And we don't have time to read it, but you can read it in your own time. First Peter chapter 5. But he says, I am a fellow elder. And I like this because Peter could have commanded by his apostolic authority. I was with God. He chose me. He sent me. Listen to me. Do what I say. But what he does is he practices what he's going to preach in verse 3. And rather, he chooses to exhort them as a fellow elder. He says, listen, listen to me because I'm like you, not because I'm better than you, not because I'm higher and greater than you. He doesn't flex his apostolic authority, his muscle. And this happens so much in the day that we live in that everyone's got to have, you know, I'm apostle so-and-so. I'm reverend so-and-so. I'm like, guy, you're, you're just Bob, okay? Now, if, if you have a gifting, if you have a position, great, by all means. But oftentimes, more often than not, and this isn't universal, but more often than not, people will greet themselves or say of themselves, I'm apostle such and such because they want some type of respect from you. And what we learn through scripture is respect, submission, leadership. It doesn't come because of a title. It, become, it comes from serving. Right? We, we've had people come to our church and greet themselves as a, 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 a what's the female version? Apostolus? I don't know. I can't. Maybe it's just apostle. Maybe it's, it's, yeah. So apostles such and such. Yada, yada, yada. Like this is their first day here and they want to lead a Bible study and they want to do this and they want that. And we're like, okay, like get in line. <laughs> no. But no, like we, first of all, the Bible says don't lay on hand, anyone too, hands on don't lay hands on anyone too quickly. A steward must be found faithful, right? Faithfulness is going to be seen over time, not just in the five seconds that we just met. And as we see throughout scriptures, that these men, they, they have all the ability to tell people what to do based on their title. But what they do is they, they rather, they, they lead by serving. They, they, they show their character in serving, Right? I'm reverend, I'm pastor, I'm deaconess, I'm prophet, so-and-so. I see this all the time, and to me, that's a red flag. And I think if you want or desire that respect or submission, again, it's not earned through your title, but it's earned through behavior and fruit, just as Jesus exemplified. And he says, look, I'm the greatest. He could have just said it and left it at that, but he gets on his hands and knees, and he serves his disciples. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, Peter says, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. He says to oversee people, you don't lead by being lords. You don't lead by 
you know, as Jesus says, Gentiles exercising lordship over people. But no, you rather love them. You lead them through serving. Because what happens is this style of leadership that, that, is, that has this demand of authority, it really it can lead to spiritual abuse, it can lead to manipulation, coercion, it, taking advantage of people, and so much more. And when, when we do that, we see that in the way of the world, but it also seeps into the way of the church. That if we lead in that way, this is what it can happen. But Jesus says, no, that's not the type of leadership I desire. That's not the type of leadership a disciple should have. It's not a place of jockeying for power or politics or authority, but it's of servanthood. It's not a self-centered way. It's a selfless way, right? Authority is not established by the office, but of the service, and that's important. So verse 26, back in Luke, he says, but not so among you, on the contrary, right? This is the way of the world. This is the way of, of Satan, He's the father of lies. He, he, he deceives you into thinking that if you want to be the greatest, then you've got to trample on people. You've got to exalt yourself. You've got to think about yourself. First and foremost, and Jesus know the way of, of Christ, the way that I've designed it, the way of love is, is to serve others. The way that you truly can climb the ladder and be exalted is to get down off the ladder and to serve others. He says, not so among you. He says, the, on the contrary, he who is greatest among you he says, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. Well, what is, what is Jesus saying here? In this time, in the ancient world, it was accepted that age gave privileges. The youngest was, by definition, the lowliest. And obviously, we see this in, in, in the greatness of it when it comes to high school, middle school. I remember going into high school my freshman year, you know, and freshmen are always ragged on by, you know, sophomores, juniors, especially seniors. You know, seniors, they're the top dogs. You know, they think they're the best. They think they're the greatest. Obviously, this isn't universal, but this is kind of the way that we see in high school. And it's funny because you go from being a ninth grade freshman to, you know, your first time in high school. You're there for one year. You then move on to your sophomore year. And immediately in your sophomore year, you look down upon freshmen. You're like, ha, sucks to be you. You're a ninth grader. Really? You're so young. <laughs> wow. If only you were as mature and as old as me. You have no idea. We're in completely different lives right now. Which is funny because at one point I was a sophomore and my wife was a freshman. Right? And Jesus, you know, we, we have this wrong mentality and I, I see it in the youth group. I do. You know, you, you start to turn 16, 17, 18, and then we start to look down on people who are younger than us. But what I also see in the youth group is I see 16, 17, 18-year-olds who really love and pour into the younger kids. And man, what a beautiful thing that is. What a beautiful and welcoming thing it is for the younger kids who, who are lost and confused and scared and intimidated, just like you once were at a younger age. That if you had the mentality to serve the younger, man, Jesus says that, that brings greatness. And it's not about bringing greatness to your name. And ultimately, it's about bringing greatness to Christ's name. Because, man, if, if I were to walk in here as a 12-year-old, man, I would be intimidated. But if somebody who were older came up to me and greeted me and welcomed me and just was hospitable and loving, man, that would, that would do a, a wonders. 
So I want to encourage you in that. Even if you're younger, like, I don't want to despise you because of your youth. I don't want to despise you because you're 12 and think that you're not capable of doing that either. You are capable of doing that. It's just the mentality that we have sometimes that when we get older is that the younger, like, we leave them behind. And I'm so thankful because, listen, in my life, when it comes to church, I've always been the youngest in everything. I'm still the youngest in our group, in our, in our leadership of our church. And I'm getting older, but I'm still the youngest. And they don't, they don't treat me any less. Even when I started off at like 20, 21, 22 years old, they were with me every step of the way. They discipled me. You know, they, they, they trained me. They were there. They helped me. And so, I mean, without that, without the older, man, you know, serving the younger, I wouldn't be where I am. And I don't think Jesus would be as, as glorified. And that's what we ultimately want as Christians, right? To, for him to be glorified. So again, he says in verse 26, not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greater among you, let him be as the younger. Imagine yourself as, as the younger, as, as the least powerful, the least assuming member of the community. Be like that. Serve them. And this is a, a specific characteristic that we as Christians and specifically as leaders should have is to serve, to not exalt ourselves. Then verse 27, for who is greater? And he, he brings this question to them. Who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? And he answers it. Is it not he who sits at the table? Isn't that the way the world sees it? Isn't it the, the, the servant, the one who is bringing the grapes to the person sitting at the table and reclining on it and they're eating from their hands? Isn't, isn't it the greater one who's sitting and being fed? Right? I mean, if we ask anyone, that would be the answer, pretty much. He gives a rhetorical question. He answers it. Is it not the one who sits at the table? But he says, yet I, Jesus, am among you as the one who does what? Serves. I am not the one sitting at the table. Again, who is the one who has the ability, not even the ability, but is worthy to be even sitting at the table and to be served. It would be Jesus. And yet, by example, he says that I'm not the one sitting at the table, but I'm the one serving. He says, you, my creation, who's arguing about being the greatest and not listening to me, you go sit at the table and I'll serve you. Jesus leads by example in that way. He sets them up with this question. The answer is obvious. The greater person is the one laying down, having the grapes dropped into his mouth. But then Jesus flips it. Remember, always, on the contrary, you want to be the greatest? You, you got to be the one serving. I am the one serving. He's the only one that can say he's the greatest because he truly is. And he says it in a roundabout way by saying, I'm the one who serves. You want to be the greatest? You have to serve. Verse 28 says, and we'll close here, but you are those who have continued with me in trials. If you guys have AirPods in, please take them out. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so again, he doesn't berate them. He doesn't throw them in time out because... They're arguing at this very moment about who's the greatest. He teaches them lovingly and patiently, but then he's also reminded of that they're with him. I, like, to me, like, that's an encouragement because sometimes I'm like, man, do these kids even listen on Sundays? 
They're, they're just on their phones. Sometimes they're falling asleep. Sometimes they've got AirPods in their ears. Like, man, it's, it's, it can be frustrating. It can be discouraging. I can walk out of here and be like, God, why am I even doing this? And I think sometimes it's just the enemy who wants to, to, to just discourage and stop the work that God is doing. Right? But ultimately, what I, what I think of is, wait, no, they're, they're here. And oftentimes, what I fail to realize is that usually the kids who I think aren't listening are actually the ones who are listening. And they're the ones that God is truly working on and growing and maturing. And it's a beautiful and amazing thing. So for me, as a leader, it's encouraging, like, that you're just even here. Right? I think about when, when Paul, when he, sp- when he taught, like, all night, the guy fell asleep and fell out the window. Right? I'd be like, wow, God, like, am I that bad that this guy's fallen asleep while I'm teaching? You know? But no, like, I, again, and I'm, I'm giving you, like, I'm encouraging you because the fact that you're here, it, it says a lot. It does. And I think sometimes we can be hard on you guys and saying, man, they just fall asleep, they don't listen, and that's just part of life. You're going to grow, you're going to mature. I can't put this unexpected or, or this unmet need or expectation on you. That, that can never happen. And then I remind myself, listen, I remind myself, man, I remember when I was 13. I was a punk. I remember thinking at 15, 16 years old, I'm like, I, I, I was listening to my, my pastor or one of the leaders teach, and I was like, I could never do that. I will never do that. There's no way. Ironically. I, I literally, I, I said it. I, I will never forget it. And I'm sure they probably thought the same exact thing. <laughs> They're like, that kid will never, ever be, like, doing this. You could ask any of my old youth leaders. They would be, like, if, if, if this was new to them, they would be shocked that I'm in the position that I'm in. They would be shocked. And so he teaches them, and he encourages them here. And he says in verse 28, but you've continued with me in my trials. This is what I'm getting at. He's reminded of, okay, you're arguing about who's the greatest, but I remember now that you're here. You, you've stayed faithful. You've continued. Yeah, like you, you're messing up right now. You're t- arguing about the stupidest things and pettiest things, but you're here. You haven't left me. He says, you've continued with me in my trials. He says, you know, what's to come, this reward. He says, I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There will be a time where they will be exalted. It's not now, but there will be a time. And same thing for you guys. Our job is not to exalt ourselves in this time. It's to humble ourselves, to serve others. And in due time, God will exalt us. And ultimately, it's not about our exaltation, it's about his exaltation, right? If, if we truly love Jesus and we've experienced his grace and his kindness, we want him to be exalted. We have to continue being faithful. Listen, you're going to mess up. You're going to fall. You're going you're gonna to do petty and dumb stuff. I know that. You're probably doing it right now, okay? Just like the disciples, but stay faithful. If you fall, get back up. If you stray, get back on the right path, right? If you sin, repent. Keep your eyes on Jesus and be faithful in continuing and striving to move forward and not leaving him and not forsaking him. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says this, and we'll close. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, 
And for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God.